This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim. And I'm Tom Jennings. And today we will be discussing Das Testament des Dr. Mabuse. But before that, um, or before we introduce our guest even, I thought I would just wanted to say that I've seen Under the Skin, the film, and you should definitely listen to Tom's other podcast, The 24 Frames Cast, and this is his episode on that one. Yeah, and just to kind of shamelessly plug that, um, don't listen to the podcast first. As a, f- a few people emailed me absolutely seething that they had, and I, I did sort of say at the start of it, I seem to recall, for God's <laughs> sakes, don't listen to this first and then watch the, the film. And they ignored my advice and were a little bit kind of spoiled. So, yeah, make sure you see the film. As I understand, I think it's available on iTunes now in America, so you can kind of get it for quite cheap if you want to rent it as well. Okay, so with us today from New York is Jamie Christley. Is that how you pronounce your name? Uh, Chrisley, with a short Chrisley, eye. yes. Yeah. And you are a critic and a cinephile, and you write for Slant Magazine, uh, among many others, uh, I seem to recall. You've written some pieces for Census of Cinema in the early 2000s, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and was was film a big part of your life when you grew up? Yeah, I kind of... Uh... I kind of latched on to it in, in my teen years, um, and then it's uh, it hasn't gone away. So, so yeah, I would say so. When did you decide that this is like what I'm wanted, what I want to do in my free time, like write <laughs> about film? I don't know. I guess when I was twelve or thirteen. <laughs> is there any particular film where you like thought this? I need to write about this, and it, it's not just enough to watch it. That's a good question. I think there's. I don't. I don't recall how how it began i i guess uh well i uh tried to write about it things on my own and the reviews that are thankfully lost in history uh, <laughs> uh i i wrote some reviews for my high school publication and uh i wrote a ton yeah just uh spewed thousands and thousands of words onto the internet uh prior to uh serious publications you know forming like slant and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I do it off and on. I'm not a, not necessarily a full-time critic, uh, but I, mm-hmm. I throw out a piece now and then. What, what do you kind of like, think of the kind of the current state of film criticism? Because I mean, it's something which I, I, I tend to kind of, I mean, I, we, I, I do talk about him a lot and I kind of refer to him a lot. People like Armand Wyatt, you know, the ones who kind of, I, I'm not sure whether kind of how much of it's kind of an act or not as to how much they're kind of pretending to kind of be so kind of controversial. And do you think kind of like film criticism of the written form has kind of been diluted by kind of like modern kind of web culture? No, I think like any field, you've got uh, mostly mediocre content and and so forth. And uh, and then a few things that are really special. And uh, I, I think at this point I found that uh, the work of, of people that i find painful and i won't name any names i just tend to just not uh pursue uh reading them so it's uh, it makes my life easier and then that there's uh people that i consider uh, uh mentors and or, or writers that i admire and uh invariably they don't write enough uh, and they, they certainly don't write full-time um and i i try to seek those out when th- those guys out when i uh when I'm able to, you you co-produced the film with um, uh, a film that was done by Dan Salit, who's a New York-based critic and filmmaker. The Unspeakable Act, and did that experience of like being involved in the filmmaking affect you in how you view and critique films? 
Um, I don't know. Uh, I didn't. I I did. I have to. Uh, I have to make sure it's out there. I didn't have any uh, creative. Uh, I didn't like. No, basically, Dan Sleet was the uh, the sole creative voice in that. Apart from obviously, mm-hmm. you know, you've got your actors, and that's that's that whole thing. Um, but uh, uh, I was uh, my role was to do with uh, logistical behind the scenes things, getting things in order and, and, uh, helping him be organized and, and getting, you know, things and people from point A to point B and, uh, uh, dealing with uh, certain bureaucracies on the way to getting, getting to the, uh, to shooting the film. Um, hmm. and I've been on, uh, I've been on film sets before and, and, uh, uh, there's no, there's nothing, you know, seeing how the sausage does, uh, gets made doesn't really ruin you. <laughs> I think uh, you just—I uh, guess—it becomes more real. Um, and I think the the best education I've had has just been watching uh, lots and lots of films over the years. Uh, I don't think there's a better better education than that anywhere. Do Do you have an education in in film? I did. I I, um, I have a bachelor's degree in cinema studies from New York University. Hmm. So what did you feel like like in that um education what what did you come away with other than viewing lots of movies that you necessarily didn't know about before um i think uh my general impression from the academic side of of uh, the bit of what we do mm. uh, as as i took it from new york university uh and it may be different elsewhere is that uh a cinephilia is uh, viewed by that culture is is a little bit uh, uh, maybe it's a strong word, but a little bit juvenile. Um, and the primary interest seems to be in uh, things to do with theory and uh, politics and sexual politics um, mm. and you know your gender performativity studies and so forth. And I think those things are extremely important. Uh, my, my life is on a different path. I'm a cinephile. And so I, uh, I fully embrace, uh, what, what some figures in that, in academia view is, uh, rudimentary. Uh, and so that's sort of how it is. But, you know, I, I pushed through it. I got the degree and <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I win. <laughs> yeah. So Tom, did you, when you went to university, did you, did you feel like you got any tools that you wouldn't have gotten when you were just viewing films? I think the thing when I went to university was, I said, it, it was a strange one because it was when I was deciding what degree to do. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I decided I would just do something at university that I was passionate about and enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened it was films. And when I got there, I mean, my diet of films when I went to university really sort of consisted of Michael Mann, and you know, people like that in American cinema. And when I went there, I remember sort of like, I, I, I was introduced truly to the concept of world cinema. And I think that was where I sort of began to find myself kind of falling in love with cinema in a, in a completely different way. And when you're also at university and you're making films and you're learning about film production, I think it sort of completely changed the way that I thought about cinema and how it was constructed. And it's sort of, in a way, I, I always say it going to, to university and doing filming ruined my love of film for life because I, <laughs> I, I simply find it impossible just to sit there now. And obviously, my day job now consists of 
basically making adverts and promos and yeah, I'm out filming and editing and producing all day. And I, it, it, it's a strange one because when I look back to university, I sort of see it as a tipping point where it, this became not only my kind of job, but also my sort of ho- hobby in a way. And it, it's a strange one. And I, I do sort of sometimes... I look back at those years and think, yeah, perhaps I should have done something else. But you know, it's just sort of like liter- English literature or something like that. But yeah, I, I think it's sort of it, it. It's a dangerous one as well. I think when you go to university and become so passionate about that, because film's an incredibly hard industry to break in into. And you know, it took me years to get where I wanted to be. And I, and I know a lot of people that sort of fell by the wayside and now you know took took other jobs and completely lost interest in it. So it's a strange one. I. I, you know, I Someone asked me the other day, they were thinking about going to do um, film studies at university and they asked me, you know, they said to me, you know, should I, should they basically go and do it? And I sort of, it was one of those sort of ones where I would, I, I said to them, you know, what, what do you want to kind of get out of it at the end of it? And I think that's what a lot of people find when on those courses. I knew a lot of people there who were just there to sort of, you know, do it the sort of same way that I started out going to university, which was this, oh, I'll go there because I like films. And then even in their third year, they were like, I don't really, really know what I'm doing here. I'm just here because I like films and it's... It's strange. It's it's dangerous, I think, to perhaps uh, go into it and not have a kind of a vague idea where you want to end up. But yeah, it's 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 one of those. I mean, I would never have seen. I mean, I I saw these Mabuse films at university. You know, I learned about Fritz Lang at university, and I'm going to bore you all to death when we start talking about shots (laughs) in the film because of my, uh, you know, because of my my film degree, basically. So, (laughs) so uh, Jamie, why did you choose the? Das Testament to Das Dr. Mabuse for this episode. Yeah, I looked at the list and there was a lot I wanted to choose. And uh, <laughs> and so I kind of uh, rolled back and forth. Uh, ultimately, uh, Lang is my uh, favorite filmmaker. Um, I mean, there's there's other filmmakers who are my favorites. I mean, Orson Welles. I would, this is how it goes. I say, well, uh, to me, Orson Welles is my favorite filmmaker, but John Ford is definitely my favorite filmmaker. But... Really, Fritz Lang is definitely my favorite filmmaker. So it's, it's like a it's like a five way tie. So I'll go with Lang for today. Um, and I just there's uh, I've seen most of his features. Uh, I have a few to get to. Um, and the Mabuse series is like this this triple crown on his career that is filled with uh, really just amazingly great films. Um, uh, it's, it's funny, like, uh, when I first saw Dr. Mabuse der Spieler, um, and I, I, I refer the testament of Dr. Mabuse by the English title, but Dr. Mabuse der Spieler yeah. is much more elegant than whatever <laughs> the Americans came up with. Um, I actually disliked it strongly because I, uh, I don't know, I just, I couldn't get in, get into it. And I was, I'm sure I was quite a bit younger and, uh, it was definitely before I became a, uh, a religious Lang enthusiast. Uh, and then I saw it a second time and I was blown away. Uh, and I think it's, uh, perhaps one of the two or three greatest silent films. Um, and then you go to the end of his career, his final film, the thousand eyes of Dr. Mabuse. Um, and he's at this phase where, you know, he's making films with television money and, you know, they're, you know, they're not cheap, but they're definitely not, you know, uh, big Hollywood uh, productions either. And yet he created something, uh, you know, one of the great final films of, of uh, if we were to rank uh, you know, famous directors, final films against each other. Um, and, 
And then uh, the Testament of Dr. Mabuse, I mean, that's perched on a on a precipice of its own, uh, you know, you know, in the timeline of the 20th century and and uh, and the shift in his career from Germany to France and the United States. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think it's a masterpiece. Uh, I, I view it, uh, I, I view part of it again and, uh, it was electrifying again. And, uh, and yeah, uh, I guess we'll get into specifics as we go. <laughs> hmm. Tom, what were your first impressions when you watched uh, the Testament? Well, we actually watched it, um, as a trilogy and we, it was a quite, I remember it being a particularly punishing day at university because we actually watched them all wow. from the morning and it was sort of it was strange when we went to university and I, I digress a little bit but we had our lectures at a cinema in in Sheffield the showroom cinema and it was a brilliant art house cinema and it had like wonderful seats and you had a nice little kind of desk that would kind of flip out and the first film that we watched a few of the people in the course I don't quite think really realized that we were there because our first lecture was at nine o'clock and when we had the screening, and it was a Joseph von Sternberg film, and people were like buying nachos and popcorn at, <laughs> at, at the concession Which stand. Um, it was um, the one in the desert with Melania Dietrich. Yes, the one, yeah. And um, we had to watch Morocco. And I remember our lecturer just stood there at the concession stand, sort of shaking his head. And it, we were doing this kind of, well, it was just, that was only one of the modules. And the next week, they said, like, you have to be there early we have to be we're starting the screenings about half past eight and i'm pretty certain they did this mabuse day just to sort of say right this is real now people you're not here to eat popcorn nachos and get a bucket of coke you're here to kind of really go through and we had to watch them all in one day and then we had to go back um every day after and watch what them again and have like kind of guest lectures in again and it was sort of like a real kind of like baptism of fire into um cinema studies really and for a lot of people, it was the first silent film they'd ever seen. And I had obviously seen, so I had seen a few silent films before. We'd watched Birth of a Nation when I was at college. But I'd never really sat through five and a half hours of silent cinema. And I absolutely hated every second <laughs> of being in that cinema. And this, of course, was ni- this was 1998. So we're not talking smartphone era. So you couldn't just sit there on Facebook, you know, posting crap up. You couldn't just, you had to focus on it. And I remember it was just an absolute ordeal to get through. And we sort of kind of emerged from the darkness, you know, five and a half hours later. And some people just went home and were like, I can't, I can't take this. And they said, right, now we're going to watch the next one. And I remember this sort of audible sort of like when we heard it was in sound. Everyone was like, oh, thank God, you know, at least there'll be something we can enjoy. And we went back in and I sat there and having gone from being literally trying desperately not to fall asleep and I was quite a heavy smoker at the time as well and five and a half hours when you smoke heavily is an eternity when you're just gagging for a, for a fact and I remember we, I sat there and I watched it and I was like oh my god this film's amazing and it suddenly I was like god I can sort of see it reminded me of a Michael Mann film in some way and it sort of seemed incredibly modern despite the fact it was made in 1933 and then when we watched this by the time we watched the third one I was like oh my god what an amazing trilogy and it kind of sparked a sort of interest in this for, sort of films for me and I was a quite a big well, as I say a student of history I'm a big fan of history I do read like, I, the more I sort of read into sort of you know the history of Germany at the time you have three very distinct but certainly in the case of the first film and the second film the difference in kind of culture and society at the time was massive and that's reflected in the films and the, the more I sort of devoured silent cinema I would go back to Dr. Mabuse and I, I, I don't necessarily think it's one of my favourite silent films ever made but I certainly 
I do love it. it. I mean, I was watching it the other day and I was just laughing out loud at the opening bit where he chastises one of his assistants for doing coke. And he's like, you want the coke again? And it sort of comes up on big round. For, yeah, it's just it's just a sort of wonderfully sort of nasty kind of anarchic film. And I, I've been a huge fan of them ever since then. And uh, I remember I got the, the original Eureka um, box set and uh, I was really yeah, I was so pleased when these came out on Blu-ray as well because it's been great going back to them. And I was actually... Um, I was watching them again in work today because although I broke the picket line and went into work, I certainly didn't have any intention of doing any work. And uh, yeah, I was completely riveted. It made you know the past seven hours at work go incredibly fast. And they're definitely when I I always, I always say this: if you want to learn about filmmaking, watch as many silent films as you possibly can because they're the best education. And certainly that first film, I think it's it is a masterpiece in many respects. But this second one, you know, some a bit the Death Testament. It's uh, I think as well, in this sort of post-Dark Knight world, I think there's a lot to kind of dig into, which, again, I'll probably be boring you to death with any time soon. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, yeah, I mean, it's up there. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say either of these films or any, any of the three of factor in my top 100 films, but my top 100 films, it changes week in and week out, but they're certainly there or thereabouts, and you know, I, I can't really praise them enough. Um, you mentioned silent cinema, and the opening scene in this film, it's... It's a silent film. Uh, it's it's like a de facto silent cinema where there's the, the industrial sound design in this film. It becomes like the score, where it's this rhythmic industrial beat that uh, that is throughout this boiler room, and the camera sort of snakes through and finds this man in hiding behind. And we're like, we're plunged into this film in medias res, and the story is coming to a conclusion when we uh, when we enter the film it's this opening is so attention grabbing and it pulls me into the film immediately yeah it's it's a it's a silent that's what struck me as well it's a silent it's basically the opening is a it is a silent film because uh you know on a on a purely technical basis there's no uh dialogue uh, certainly nothing that's in sync um and you know, there's no sound that matches up with the visuals, but and, and then it's told expressively through the visuals. But at the same mm-hmm. time, uh, it does not uh, it does not play without that machinery just pounding away. You know, it's it's so menacing, and also it contributes to the mystery and uh, that final uh, tilt uh, when we see Hoffmeister. We don't know his name yet. Uh, sort of uh, hiding rodent like behind the the big uh, the big chest yeah i mean and, and it sounds a, a fairly stupid obvious point to make but the opening of a film to me is so important because it's like that's that, that, that during those first few moments that's when i can normally tell whether i'm with this film or not i'm not going to be with it and as soon as you're kind of tracking through that basement and it, it was strange when i was re- when i was watching it again today i suddenly i realized i'd sort of tuned out to that rhythmic noise that's going on and as I was just watching the scene, then I suddenly kind of tuned back into it. And I suddenly realized the reason why I sort of tuned out was because I was so gripped by what I was seeing, trying to kind of piece it together. And like you say, Joachim, when you start a film and a story and you're sort of coming straight in on it, your mind instantly starts to kind of ask questions, you know, what's hmm. going on? Who's this? Why is that happening? And I love that kind of thing. Cause you feel like you're going into a mystery. And because obviously you're kind of going in with the knowledge of you know, having seen the first one, you're into that Mabuse world and you know it's going to be kind of dark and there's going to be all kind of all sorts of wrongness going on. And yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely love that opening and it's it's up there. I suppose, you know, 
being film fans, we all make our internal list. But it'd be up there as one of my favourite openings to a film because, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm buying it. I'm intrigued. And I want to know what happens next. And I think that's such a key thing with films. And you know, just to give an example, X-Men, the last X-Men film, within five minutes, I thought, I don't think I care about this film already. <laughs> because, because I was so, I was just like, oh, God, yeah, it's, it's Matrix Revolutions and it's Back to the Future, whatever. And I instantly began to tune out. This is the complete opposite for me when I watch this. And that's I, I, it's such an important thing. The, the, the cutting that you mentioned, it's, it's something that is um it's present throughout the film where there's there, it has this strange disorienting effect where they're often discussing a character or mentioning someone's name or the sound often bleeds from one scene to the next and you often don't realize that oh there's a new scene that started because you're so caught up with the sound that the the visuals it sort of it it comes so abruptly into a new scene that you have to like readjust and find your new place in that scene. And it has that really disorienting effect. Yeah. I found that, uh, um, I think that don't, don't uh, hold me to this, but I think that there was some of that business with, uh, with M as well, not to such a degree, but, um, and also just to get back to the sound as well. I mean, M was his first sound picture and, a lot of it, if you watch it, uh, has nothing on the soundtrack. Um, you know, nothing at all. Uh, mm, yeah. you know, because at that point, 1931, there were, you know, uh, Hollywood and, and Ufa, they were working with the one track system. And so if you, you either had a, a sound, like one sound that was recorded or one person's voice, or you had nothing. Um, so, uh, uh, we're talking about it, the, the cutting. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it kind of, uh, weaves, it, it sort of disorients yet unifies, uh, because they'll be, they won't necessarily be talking about, they won't necessarily cut to that specific person, but it'll kind of allude to what we're about to see and then it'll cut to mm -hmm. it. Uh, that was the, the first big example of that is when, uh, we cut to the professor at his lecture, um, because it's, uh, I think it's a little man says something about a madman and then we cut to the professor and, you know, of course that takes on a, uh, a more significant meaning as we watch the film. Um, uh, we don't have to worry about spoiling an 81 year old film. I hope. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, sure. no, I mean, there's a, a couple of things I noticed, like there's, there's some, some something where the cut seems to come too quickly, almost like, and there's mm -hmm. one bit where someone's like working through some papers and I sort of thought, oh, here's the bit where it's going to kind of stick on the papers and we're going to read what's on them. And then, like, boom, it goes. And it's quite playful as well, because I think at one time someone holds up a picture and then the picture becomes the frame of the next cut and it's, mm -hmm. it becomes alive and things like that. Like, yeah, it's, it, for the time, I mean, we've, I suppose with kind of like editing now, you know, we kind of see that kind of, like, yeah, I think of Ang Lee's Hulk and all that kind of thing with kind of crazy editing going on, you know, like panels of a comic book. But I, I think that kind of just really, when I see it in this, it kind of reminds me of how sort of, head of the game or you know technically kind of playful Fritz Lang is in this film and it it's the, the thing about this film is I, I think it sort of comes into the idea that although it's obviously quite a dark film it's also quite a funny film as well at times I think it has got kind of I mean especially the kind of the chief detective character is you know certainly quite a kind of a, a some comedy relief and I, I think it's a fun film in the in that. and I think Fritz Lang's having fun as a filmmaker and I sort of get the impression he's kind of enjoying the kind of, you know, the toy of cinema, as it were. Hmm. Yeah, Lohmann, who's, uh, who may or may not be the same Lohmann in, in M. 
Oh, that's a good point, actually. You know, I've never. I, I think hope it could, is actually. You can have it both. I think you can have it both ways. You can just say it is, and or maybe it isn't. You know, depending on which world you want to live in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when I was watching it, um, you know, it's they, I, this it, it does feel very much part of the same universe as them. Yeah. It's that sort of kind of you know kind of underworld Germany and mm. a very sort of male dominated world as well, isn't it? It's it's quite you know you, you, it, yeah. it seems like it seems like it very much feels like a same kind of universe. I don't think there's anything because I mean I was thinking about when I was watching the first film earlier and, and how you could have all, at the time when that came out you have all this kind of German expressionism going on and it, it does it, it's not quite as crazy and out there as those types of film. It does seem to have kind of its roots in reality and these films do feel very much like they're meant to be taking place apart from the kind of the, the slight sort of supernatural things that are going on but the, the actual kind of physical world is you know supposed to be reflective of its contemporary time i think well i mean i i, I agree with that to the extent that uh i would also say that mabuse would not be allowed in an m uh that's um uh, because i think part of well, I think one of the themes of Testament is the is the is the idea that the the nature of the criminal empire and the empire of crime is uh, so great that it literally will drive you mad. Uh, and then M, uh, I think primarily you've got the the attempt to grapple with uh, a single criminal mind, and and uh, you know that that the layer of tragedy also is maybe. It, it, it's too heavy for the Mabuse films. Uh, they've got they've got a they've got a corner on the escapist uh, aspect of storytelling. Um, but I so I do agree with you though uh, to an extent that uh, they feel like they belong to the same universe. But yeah, with with uh, distinctions. Yeah, yeah. To continue the comparison, Emma's like I feel it's like this critique against this blasé. Uh, non-committal uh, person in the uh, in the streets, and it's like urging people to stand up for their own principles. And Mabuse, on the other hand, it preaches the message about uh, how you can lose your own identity when you're blindly following the leadership of something a superior that is out of control or someone that is unknown and. It's, it seems to be um, two films that is talking about the same things, but uh, through different um, different aspects. Well, I, I actually, I mean, I think it's probably now really to kind of bring up the, the, sort of the Dark Knight kind of trilogy in relation to this film. Because when I was watching uh, it again today, there was it reminded me of a scene in the opening of The Dark Knight Rises where Bane takes over that plane and the guy's trying to get out and he says, no, one of us needs to stay. And the guy just looks at him and falls to his death. And it's a really, it's, in that film, it's a, the scene that stands out for me most because it's that kind of like that blind faith type thing. And you hmm. know, like that to the point where you were literally, you know, you'll die for this or you know, you'll die for this ideal, you know, just on the whim of how you look up to someone. And when I was watching these, I was sort of thinking, especially today, I think you got these films, you know, they do sort of, they go into that area of exploring kind of devotion to an ideal and to the point, you know, it will drive you insane. And it's an incredibly uncomfortable kind of thing to get your head around because it's, you know, we sort of look at all the kind of things that happen in the world today, which kind of people are driven to do in the name of, you know, causes, you know, 
you know, suicide bombers and things like that. And I feel this film is kind of exploring that nature. You know, what, you know, what you know, how far will some people go in the name of an ideal? And you know, that kind of that inception idea. And obviously, it's kind of crime in this. And what's lacking in this film, I think, is the kind of this. There's not sort of like some grandiose political statement being made, I don't think, about kind of crime in general. It's more anarchy, really, that this kind of Mbuse kind of ideal is going for. And mm. I think um, I, th- I think it does a really good job of putting this kind of quite kind of disturbing concept out there and not really as well trying to kind of offer any kind of neat solution to it. I think it's sort of... It, it's a very uncomfortable film in that it doesn't kind of offer this kind of nicely wrapped up ending. It's a sort of sense that this could go on and on and on. And yeah, I, I think in that respect, it's a pretty disturbing film for me. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I think a friend formulated it as uh, in the first Mabuse film, the uh, the criminal element is contained in a man and in, in the Testament, it's contained in papers. And in the third, it's uh, it's in the, it's in the, uh, I guess it's in the eye. It's in the cameras around the hotel, um, and so it it seems to change, uh, change its shape as the as the decades go on through the twentieth century, um, and I, I've always uh, I've always you know struggled with the, the political subtext and and testament, uh, not in a bad way, but you know. Uh, I think it is a film that gets, that could be, and, uh, I believe was, uh, you know, it it was trimmed a bit by the, by the Nazis to kind of, uh, get across the, uh, their message. And you could, uh, you could easily fool people into, to saying that the, the Mbuse character is a representative of the, uh, of the Jews and how the, uh, in that context, they uh, they have a negative effect on society, and that they're that's the that's the criminal element, and so forth. Which uh, obviously Lang would definitely be horrified by. And, um, actually, I don't want to get too deep into that because I want to. Uh, I don't have my notes in, insofar as uh, the recutting of of, uh, of Testament uh, under the Nazis. Um, I think does actually, anyone have a, think... Do you have that at your at your yeah, I mean, I, the thing about the kind of nuts, they actually kind of, I think it was actually cut because it, they actually thought um, it, it was kind of dangerous in a sort of idea that it might provoke sort of an uprising. The fact that, you know, people, if they kind of got together, could kind of overthrow. Um, I think the actual quote was it showed an extremely dedicated group of people are perfectly capable of overthrowing any state with violence. And that was the actual Goebbels who said that about mm-hmm. the film. And obviously it was quite sort of, you know, scary, I suppose, for, you know, for them to be that kind of... Um, you know, to, to take the scissors to it in that way. I mean, I wasn't aware of this sort of Mabuse being sort of seen as a kind of a, a you know a, a Jewish character. I wasn't aware of that kind of controversy surrounding it. I thought it was more by the fact that they thought it was a film that could actually promote a kind of an insurrection amongst the populace. Okay. But, but but it's an interesting point because uh, I think I read the film was actually banned until 1951 or something, and then it was released in a cut version. But the interesting thing is that I can totally see your how how one could uh, interpret the film as being something that the Nazis could use uh, to suppress the Jews and whatnot. But you could also use the film as a, a metaphor for Nazism. And the thing I read... Absolutely. I read a lot about... Yep. Yeah, the thing I read a lot about 
throughout the reviews it's that this is certainly something about Hitler and whatever but it seems like this is like uh, when we, we when we look back 2020 hindsight it's easy to see the parallels but this is about a man who is going insane and is attempting to establish an empire throughout throughout the country through crime and this isn't something new this is this is something um this is like a saga or a it's an age-old uh, age-old tale yeah it's uh like how like you know like when you're watching the film you you sort of have to take it on faith that dr mabuse or the spirit of dr mabuse is is uh, a real threat to the destruction of of lang's fictional germany mm. and uh and you don't see uh, you don't see Nazis anywhere in the film. There's no one wearing a, a uniform except some police and as a traffic cop. Uh, but you know, other than that, it's all there. I mean, German society is in uh, deep disarray, or uh, in flashback, it's uh, it's uh, at the employment office. That's that point is put across. Um, and I think if you stand back from it, you say, well, you know. Uh, is you know, are we really seeing a, a society that's being destroyed? Uh, uh, what we see a lot of is these jo- these crime jobs being carried out uh, with precision from the instructions of uh, Doctor Mabuse, and then we sort of have to take that as uh, representing um, you know that if this continues or expands, then it'll envelop society. And I think we just sort of have to accept that without necessarily seeing. Uh, saying more to substantiate it. Hmm. I think it's a film, uh, perhaps it probably speaks to kind of dis- dis- the disenfranchised a little bit, because it's the Tom Kent character, isn't it, where, you know, he's, you know, they say he's at the job place trying to get, you know, work, and he kind of rather dramatically turns around and says, if I can't get you know, a job, I'm going to get into crime or something like that, and kind of storms off. And I mean, you know, knowing what we know about history, you know, obviously sort of the mass kind of, unemployment that followed in the war years and the fact that kind of obviously Hitler kind of galvanized the country and got people and thinking about I think for me I, I I'm, I'm quite happy to kind of go on the fact that I think it was just trying to tell a story and wasn't trying to be overtly political one way or the other I think mm-hmm. it's just using the kind of the socio-political situation so uh, you know as a kind of a backdrop to tell the story at you obviously the reason why there was why he can't get a job is because of you know, the crippling reparations that are being paid you know the, the simple fact that the, the uh, post you know first world war that the country was on its knees basically and you know he's a victim of that in a way tom sorry the kent character who then kind of shacks up and gets into some crime and he kind of does it as a way of making ends meet and i i think the, the other criminals in the, in the you, know, you see him working with i don't think you really kind of understand what what they other than sort of this idea they don't seem to be kind of I don't know, they, they don't make kind of any kind of cop remarks to their kind of state or, you know, like how bad their lives are or anything like that. They just seem to be in it because it's this thing that this kind of ideal that they're kind of going for and have this kind of blind faith in it. And I, I, I think that's the kind of, I, I think Tom or Kent or whatever is, is the kind of the, the key character in terms of that because I think he's the one who you're supposed to kind of experience this. You to feel a bit sorry for him, to be honest with you. I think that's the kind mm. of what they're going for. And I don't know about you two, but I did find that subplot is one of the weaker elements of the film. I think his relationship with the girl. Yeah. 
Well, it's a you know, Lang gets a little soft sometimes, and <laughs> and uh, I have to point out that I uh, uh, when I when I viewed it uh, part of it recently that uh, from certain angles and certain light, uh, Tom Kent kind of seems like this idealized uh, portrait of Lang himself. You know, he's uh, it, his face has a slight resemblance, but then of course he's uh, you know this muscular hulk of a guy, uh, and, and of course he's very noble, and uh, you know that. The film makes sure that the script makes sure makes sure that we understand that uh, he paid back Lily the money and and that sort yeah. of thing. So <laughs> I, mean, I, was, I was thinking during that entire flashback, it could have just been said at the dinner table. Well, we didn't need that. We didn't need that at all. I was sort of thinking, you know, I was like, come on, yeah. I mean, that was I don't know, perhaps that was just the, the the editor in me just thinking, you know, do we really need to have that kind of scene? But you know, it was yeah. Jack said, I mean, I'll give it a pass, obviously, but. Um, yeah. I did, yeah. I, I give it a pass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, overall. I mean, uh, if you look at a, if you look at a, a lot of, uh, I think if, if you look at Lang's films down the line, um, despite how, however he wanted to come across in real life, uh, um, as this uh, tough old German dude, that uh, his his soft side came out quite a bit. So, and uh, I think <laughs> if you if you end up liking him, you you kind of look the other way at some stuff. But the thing I struggle with with this film is that on the one hand, it moves at such a brisk pace, but on the other hand, there are certain elements of the film that feel superfluous while others feel like they aren't drawn out enough. It moves so incredibly fast and there's so much plotting in the film that it feels almost too dense for me. Hmm. Um, well, it kind of isn't, isn't it? I think the issue with this film is like we know things that the detectives don't in the film. And there's nothing worse, I think, sometimes when you're seeing them work out something you already know. And it does get a little bit kind of teed. And I think there is a lot of that in this film, in fact, where it's sort of like it just seems to be kind of plodding along, you know. And it, I, I guess in a way it's because really when, it, when you think about it, this film's also it's, it's, it's like a procedural as well. Yes, very conversational. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, detectives working out well, what's happening here. And it's very slow. Like They're kind of like... That brilliant scene where the guy gets assassinated in the car, and then you sort of mm. see, the, you know, it's like, how did he do it? He must have been sat down when he. Well, we know all that because we saw it. And but seeing them work it out, and I know what you mean. I was sort of thinking, like, yeah, we can kind of probably drop this. And, uh, it, but I think the fact that it's kind of you're having a bit of fun with it as well, and I certainly think that's kind of helped by the fact that yeah, this guy's quite, the, you know, the cop's quite funny, and you sort of see him kind of being quite rude and obnoxious. I love the fact. I love. Love him during that shootout as well, where he just literally just walks up to the door, <laughs> knocks on the door, and says, "Put your guns down, guys!" And they do it, and it's like, yeah, it's brilliant moments like that. And I, I think because I, I I enjoy that character so much, I'm kind of I, I can sort of kind of ride it out a little bit. I mean, it, 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 as much as I do like the first film, some of that is fairly torturous to get through. I have to be really honest. Like, come on, let's oh, get, let's pick I, it. I have to rise let's... to the defense of the superflu- superfluous, and <laughs> uh, and that I think it's. Uh, I think it's part of the it's part of the bargain, uh, in that like uh similarly to M, you've got this uh uh sort of you know, he's he's uh drilling through uh Weimar uh Germany with uh or, or you know, or the city of Berlin or I believe this is uh, can, can I just step out and say can I, yeah. is this uh is this Berlin? Are we accepting it as Berlin or is it stated as Berlin? I can't I honestly can't remember. I just assume- I assume anything shot in Germany is Berlin. I know, I know. M um, is 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 taken on faith that it's Berlin, uh, 
Uh, anyway, should... I, I don't think it's mentioned, but I, I think it's assumed. So we just yeah, assume. I, I, Can we just go with I, it then? I, yeah, yeah I mean, sure. I, and I, I like the fact as well that it doesn't actually tell you what city it's in. Like, yeah. And one of the comparisons I keep making when I, when I was thinking about this is Seven, mm. where you don't know where... I mean, I, I might be completely wrong on that, but as far as I'm concerned, I've no idea where Seven's actually set. And people always say it's in Seattle because it's always raining. Uh-huh. Never <laughs> that like seems a bit of a... Seattle never rains like that, though. But then again, it's uh, Seven is supposed to be L.A. at the end, but uh, I don't think it rained, rains a lot in L.A. either. Uh. Yeah, and... <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I like it. Though. It yeah. has that sort of air of kind of like, what is this? And that, that, that's one of the reasons why I quite like this is that because it doesn't have that kind of setting, you don't, you're not where it's just, I, I, t- I tend to find I'm more focused on it in a way. I'm not sort of, you, know, you don't show any landmarks as well, does he? I mean, it's yeah, quite, yeah. I, think, I think the most part it's all shot in studio anyway. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have no issue with it not knowing where it's set. Well, sense. I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to know if there yeah. was a, if it was uh, agreed upon or if it was known. Uh, or mentioned in the film. Um, but anyway, I just, uh, I mean, Lang look, likes to, you know, he likes to have it both ways. He likes to have his characters, he likes to have his actors move very in very specific ways and his, uh, and time time their movements in very specific ways, in the way Loman cuts his cigar. And I think uh, if you look at the scene where Loman, uh, Loman and the professor are, are having a conversation over Mabuza's corpse. Um, it's a very theatrical scene, and both actors are well. They're on different mm-hmm. degrees of theater, uh, of, of theatrical acting, um, but their their movements are very carefully timed. and And you can prove this by looking at the French uh, Testament of Doctor Mabuze, which was filmed with different actors, but the timing is is almost exactly the same. So he has that. He has that side of him. Uh, you know, micromanaging everything, but you know, he loves, uh, he loves to just kind of, uh, kind of let it hang out a little bit. Like he, he has the, um, the Loman's assistant who's, who's kind of provides a bit of comic relief. And, uh, you know, the guys, one of the criminals, uh, he's, he, uh, during one of those, uh, digressions where he's, he's focusing on his sausages, but he's also, kind of asking uh, potentially mutinous questions about uh, Mabuza's plan uh, or the scene where uh, uh, Loma's assistant is trying to keep the, trying to persuade the cleaning lady not to come in because, yeah. uh, you know, Loman's like he's in his think phase or something like that and he can't be disturbed. <laughs> and the, the cleaning lady is about to, you know, she's, she doesn't want to hear anything that this little guy has to say. Um, and, uh, and I just think he likes to, even if he doesn't name the city or or try and kind of get to that uh, approach reality that closely, I think he likes to um, sort of pluck figures from his imagined reality and, and make sure that they get in the story or get get a few seconds on the screen anyway. Uh, let me let me just interject one thing because I noticed the first couple of times I watched the film, I was lost several times and I kept like slipping out and just. I was enjoying the film because I was I was looking at it and I was listening to it, but I couldn't exactly engage with the story. It was only the third time I watched the film where I, I had a grasp on what the plot was and how it moved along that I could really, like, I could, I could let my shoulders down and relax and actually watch the film and understand it because it felt like it was 
just over complex and the storytelling was just too demanding for my slow brain i don't know that sounds like most people's experience with uh, the big sleep okay <laughs> yeah, well i mean I, I, yeah i just think it's, I, i'm still yet to watch that film and and get it I, I just it still throws me to this day and it was on telly the other day and i thought right come on come on come on and <laughs> 10 minutes out, just like no i can't do this I'm, i i need to, to think but i've actually got a rule now you're referring which, to the, the hawks I, well, I, I do. Sorry, do I like how it works? So you say. No, I mean, were, were, you, were you referring to the the big sleep just now? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, oh. yeah, yeah. Big sleep. Yeah, yeah. I say, no, yeah, yeah. When I, yeah, I, I still can't get into that. But I actually think it's kind of it's indicative, really, of of the kind of way in which films we, we watch them now. And I have a rule now, which is when I watch a film, I put my mobile phone upstairs on silent and go downstairs and watch a film. And I think it's because we've sort of trained ourselves to have attention spans of gnats. Mm-hmm. Really, that I think it's, it, it, it sort of suffers a little bit, and I, with, it, this is one of those films where you have to keep up with it, and it, it's it, that's why, in a way, it kind of reminds me a little bit of a film like Michael Mann's Heat. If you kind of don't quite pay attention to some of the people in that film, it, it can lose you a little bit. I think Heat and Times, and this film reminded me of that in a way that if you don't keep up with it, it's not going to wait for you and spoon feed you the narrative. You really have to kind of keep pace and you have to watch it. Where it's just you and that film, and I don't know how actually you should watch films, but the simple fact of the matter is, I know a lot of people who don't. We are sort of like kind of you know always kind of looking for something and you know quickly checking this and checking that, and it, it's it's made for audiences from a different time. I think this film, and that's why you have to sort of give it your one hundred percent attention, and it you, it will reward you. And obviously, the more you watch it, I mean, I've seen it four or five times now, and I always take a little something out of it every time that I watch it again, mm. which I think always to me is a sign that I, I'm you know enjoying a film, and it's always a good. I always feel good about a film when that kind of thing happens. And the more I've watched it, the more I tend to, you know, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's funny. uh, uh, You mentioned spoilers earlier. And uh, one of the things that that bothers me about a lot of, uh, uh, like, acclaimed television these days, and and I definitely watch a lot of (laughs) of the acclaimed television these days, is that... uh, you know, plot is so important, and plot is the is kind of like the drug that keeps us coming back for more, and 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 you make sure that uh, you know you don't spoil uh, you don't spoil Breaking Bad, you don't spoil Lost, you don't spoil you know whatever the the show is, uh, and these things are all to do with uh, a script. Um, it's not to do with what makes uh, what necessarily makes something special and lasting. Um, I mean, how can you spoil? How can you spoil the testament of Dr. Mabuse? I mean, how, how are you going to tell somebody <laughs> that when the professor is uh, uh, going over papers that there's these cuts to these African masks? It doesn't have any meaning unless you watch the film. And it doesn't necessarily have any textual meaning then either, but it adds to the sensation that that builds as we as we cut to other things and then we, we uh, have that phantom Mabuse appear and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and as the film draws to its conclusion you, every time we see the professor from then on he's slightly more deranged and uh, kind of like the doctor in that big whoever the giant spider movie is from the 50s where he gets a uh <laughs> you know every time we see him he's worse off because he got this spider bite early on um but anyway just to return to that uh you know these are you could tell someone you could explain the plot of Testament of Dr. Mabuse uh, at some point. You could diagram it for someone. You could spoil it for someone. But at the same time, there's there's nothing that you could say that's going to prepare somebody for, for the sensations that they're going to experience. And 
not just in single scenes, but sort of the compound sensation of of, of uh, things being cut together or or or, or things following one another in sequence. Uh, I think that's uh, it's irreproducible. Uh, it's not something that you can uh, you can simply just do uh, from the script. Anyway, that was a little okay. a little rant about no, no. spoilers. No, no, no. <laughs> I got very uh, irritated with someone who, uh, and this is, this is, I'm going to uh, out myself as a very silly person, but uh, someone revealed to me that uh, Buffy's mom died on Buffy the Vampire Slayer in a 2001 episode, and uh, this spoiler was made to me, uh, I don't know, 12 years after the episode aired, <laughs> and I got very upset. It's like you know, I haven't, I, I'm going through, I'm watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer right now. And I haven't gotten to that yet, you know. I I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of upset with you that you that you said that. But the thing is, um, someone could watch it right now, and that that's a one of the one of the finest hours of television, um, and and know that in advance. And it takes and you you're you're prepared in no way for what the episode has in store. So it's just, it's all, it, to me, that's one thing that attracts me to cinema is, is that you don't know what you're getting into based on script, concept, story, so forth. Uh, it's, it's direction, uh, that really pulls it together. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, thanks for ruining Buffy the Vampire <laughs> for me. That was my next, that was my next pop set, but no, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I found out, um, yeah, there's a few. I won't say what series it was or what the spoiler was, just in case. But I know exactly what you mean because when the moment comes, in, until you've actually got a proper context for what you're seeing, and you know, and another thing as well, once you've kind of got to know characters, especially in TV format, once you kind of built up a rapport with them and you know they're kind of like you, you have your kind of feelings about them, how they kind of go and what happens. In Alias is one of the best series for that. Actually, I tend to find that was pr- pretty brilliant in terms. Of, I, knew, I knew a couple of spoilers going into that, but it didn't say it didn't detract from the fact that when certain moments came, I was uh, still equally gripped. But mm. yeah, you're completely right. You can't ruin a film with, like Laboose said. You have to see it. And yeah, or, yeah, you could... or to say, if you do ruin a film with spoilers, uh, you know, how, uh, <laughs> what value is the film uh, at that? If it's exactly. the kind of film that yes. can be ruined with spoilers. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, what did you two make of The Village? In terms of spoilers, because I knew the spoiler for that for when oh, I went the into it. Shyamalan film, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, but I, I still really enjoyed the film, and even when I sort of when the reveal happened, it, it kind of made me quite appreciate it even more for some reason. I don't know. It was a, I might have had my cricketal faculties down that day. I think I was a little bit. I, I, I would like to revisit it. I'm, I'm sort of a Shyamalan like apologist. Yeah, I think <laughs> I am. Yeah. At this point, because you know his reputation has gone, uh, you know down just down the tubes uh in over the years and now he's he's for a few years now he's been a joke uh or the punchline to a joke for a lot of people but uh i think i would probably get more out of it if i came back if i went back to see it it seemed a little uh i think at the time what it, it came after it came after science didn't it i think so so yeah, yeah. i think it seemed a little bit deranged in a way that i couldn't follow uh not plot wise but just to yeah, it seemed like he was letting uh, letting his freak flag fly a little bit at that point. Yeah, uh, more than more than he had done up to that point. And I think what I what happened is I actually ended up tuning into that 
to that uh, his wavelength in, with Lady in the Water. Uh, yeah. More so. So, uh, you know, maybe it'll be rewarding if I go back and see it again. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, slight discretion. <laughs> <Sorry, laughs> discretion so. We're talking about Shai no, but... Marlin today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, getting back to the film, though, um, we were talking about direction and length especially in the films that I've seen, his early films like Metropolis and M and this one, he has this almost eerie capability of foreseeing the future with Metropolis. It's the technology with M. It's it's this um, how people need to stand up for the principles. And with Mabuse, it's this German society that is overwhelmed with like poverty and fear and crime and this Mabuse who's obsessed with destroying the society and it and well it, I mean not, not I'll a brief interruption but uh, yeah, the, the thousand continue. eyes of Dr. Mabuse I think uh, uh, you know Tom you're a Dark Knight fan you could uh, you could recognize the 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 infinite camera apparatus as being uh, uh, repeated in the in, in in the Dark Knight so mm. No, no, absolutely. I, I, and um, yeah, I, I, well, I especially think in this, you know, that was all I was thinking about really when I was watching, you know, watching this was kind of how, yeah, like you say, Joachim, how relevant it is, how, how sort of, you know, bold the storytelling is, you know, hmm. and kind of in, in I, I guess that kind of in The Dark Knight Rises when kind of, you know, Bane takes over the city, that's sort of like what Mabuse was trying to sort of do anyway. It feels like that was, you know, kind of trying to get this sort of society overthrown and this kind of new order. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, you know, it's. I think it's genius, really, in that respect. And it's one of the reasons why I, it's it, watching this makes me sort of realise how ambivalent I am to a lot of modern films that I see because I feel like you. Know, so so it's so hard to be original now. I think anyway, isn't it really? You know, to to really do something truly kind of like you've never seen before, other than under the skin. But this, yeah, it feels like you know, there's a there's a template for lots of contemporary filmmakers stories you know, stories they've told and kind of style in this film which i think is quite interesting well um i have to i have to come to the defense of uh, of unoriginal films i guess in a way i'll explain in a second uh i think uh you know there's a there's there's several uh, many many uh, truly singular masterpieces in cinema but uh i think another kind of great film is when a director uh, and Lang did this several times in his Hollywood phase. Takes uh, concepts that are uh, that are very tiresome, and he creates something special out of it through through the act of direction. Um, and uh, I think the primary example that comes to mind, it's certainly my favorite of his American films, which means it's one of my favorite films. Period is uh, Ministry of Fear. <gasps> <laughs> Wait, are we? Uh, is that uh, is that Omerta? <laughs> Should we not discuss that? <laughs> Ministry of Fear is, I, I can categorically say, one of the worst films of the No. Oh, all right. yeah. We should, we should step know. away from this. Uh, <laughs> let me choose another. Let me say... Uh, uh, <laughs> no, we can talk about Ministry of Fear, please. Let's, let's, get back on, let's get back on Common Ground. Let's say... Um, <laughs> could we say Secret Behind the Door or A Secret Beyond the Door? Or uh, the woman in the it. window. Well, the point the point being uh, the point that I wanted to get to is that it'll take well I'll take something that's uh, that I that I think a lot of people will agree is uh, secondary lang, uh, uh, or or even tertiary lang, which is uh, you and me. 
uh, which is the, you know, sort of a quasi crime musical, uh, that he made with Sylvia Sidney and George Raft. Uh, and it, uh, and you've got, uh, Norman Krasna doing some of the writing work on it. And he's, he's kind of a, he liked to goof around a little bit and he liked to create funny situations and, uh, George Raft, uh, tripping over a lamp and, we need to go back to Ministry of Fear because Joachim, you're going to trip in on this one as well. I hope. Um, uh, I'm not. I was not uh, as um, antagonistic about it as you were. Well, I did so. review it on an episode, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Oh well. Just, it was one of I, it was one of those films. I think I hated it as well. One of the reasons I hated it because when I used to order Criterion's, some of them used to get stopped at customs, and that was the one that oh. got stopped stop at customs, and I had to effectively play double for it to get it through customs. Oh, wow. And it I started thought, off and, and right I thought, on the right foot with, with you then. Yeah, and, I, and it was like one of those where I thought, oh, Fritz Lang, propaganda films, brilliant. What can go wrong? And I was like, that can go wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I, 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 what can I say? I love it. And uh, <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, but I, I, I kind of was scanning his filmography, and I went, and I... Uh, just picked out you and me because uh, it's not uh, there's not a consensus around it. A very not as many people have seen it, and those that have seen it sort of say it's a uh, you know it's secondary. Um, but you know it's uh, it has that special has you know he brings special things to it. And uh, uh, where did we start out? I was uh, I was so yeah, I was so violently thrown off by your uh, <laughs> no no we're talking acidic. about originality and I. I, I <laughs> Yeah. No, we were talking about originality and the fact that I sort of said it, I think it's quite hard to be original. And I completely agree with what you're saying. You know, you can a good director can tell a story you've seen a hundred times before, and if they tell it well, you sort of kind of get over it. But the sort of point I was making is it, you, you kind of get to that stage sometimes where a lot of films, you know, they have very very similar stories. It's not, it's not really. I don't kind of blame filmmakers for kind of being unoriginal to an extent because it is so hard. You know, there's so many every, so many stories have been done and done and done and done. And as long as it's kind of well directed, well acted, you, you can give it a pass. I think the kind of what you were saying was about the fact that Lang, you know, through his direction, he's quite good at telling you, showing you something you've already seen before. But because it's sort of him doing it and he's kind of directorial style, he's able to sort of kind of you know, move you away from kind of the, the fact that you're thinking, well, yeah, I've seen this before, but I'm enjoying it on this nonetheless because of his input into it. Yeah, it's it's almost like, a, and this is a, a situation that a lot of uh, um, the directors that we uh, hold to high esteem from uh, through our tourism is uh, is they have this kind of uh, combative relationship with the script, uh, even if it's sort of even if it's passive uh, or 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 uh, done surreptitiously, uh, they they look for ways to to subvert uh, a familiar story. And hmm. this, I can actually seg back to Testament because, uh, uh, Joaquim, you were you had concerns about uh, this. You had story concerns with uh, with Testament, hmm. and. Uh, I kind of credit uh, Lang uh, in in saying how great the film is. I, I sort of credit him with not being entirely interested in selling and in, in doing a hard sell with this uh, with a crime story. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that he's interested in creating uh, this disturbance in the viewer. You know, he's interested in sort of shaking us up and sort of moving us left to right. Uh, 
and whether or not we completely are able to connect all the dots in terms of um, uh, who did what and who is located where and so forth and so on is not, uh, you know, it's not it's not a primary concern. Hmm. So. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, I I I totally see. I think he. Like I said it, I I got the impression from this film he's enjoying the film. He's enjoying making the film and kind yeah. of playing around with it a lot and you know. It, it's like I say, it's, it's a procedural film that yeah, it might take a little bit of time to get there. But again, I, it's one of the reasons why you, you can sort of give it a pass because you're kind of in, in there enjoying it as well. Um, I sort of think his direction in the film, though, I mean, one of the things I was kind of really kind of taken with, when you sort of look at Metropolis, it's this huge, massive film. This is a very tight film. Mm. A lot of the compositions are sort of you know, almost to the point where people's you know heads are almost touching the top of the frame and it's very kind of claustrophobic to watch, I think. And that was something I found quite kind of jarring about it because it doesn't seem... I suppose the, the, it, it, it feels very small in a way and you, you're forced to kind of focus on it. And I think when I was... when it came up with the last Fritz Lang film I watched was again was Metropolis and when I went back I thought god this is so tight and sort of and it works perfectly I think the story that it's actually telling because I, I, I like the sort of the immediacy that you find with it when you kind of thrust into it that kind of you know that tightly yeah I think it's it's something you see in a lot of Lang is is the compositions are are uh, are filled with these nested angles that are impossible to unravel um, he, he he really likes to fill the frame up uh, as much as possible, and I think he likes to lead you on the path that you can uh, you can rely on the geometry. Uh, but if you look too closely, you kind of uh, I don't know <laughs> your, your eyes get a little fuzzy. If that makes sense. Yeah, and then I mean, there's one scene where there's a couple of characters talking in like a basement, and he actually frames the characters where through the door frame in the far ground with the door frame in the middle and then just blackness in the foreground. It's like, it's kind of like almost like tunnel effect that you're looking down mm. there. And when I, when I was watching it, I had it on kind of the big screen and I was like, Oh God, it, it's very disconcerting in a way. Yeah. You suddenly you realize that your eyes are just completely kind of going down this, you know, you're looking into the screen and into the image. And again, it's one of, it's one of these sort of things I find with a lot of um, directors that go and seeing like seeing directors now who have like a real kind of voice, like an example about a new before, but the, the new Wolverine film, for example, or the one that came out before X Men, that, that that one. Um, the as much as enjoyable, James Mangold one. Yeah, yeah, the James Mangold one. Yeah, as much as I enjoyed the film, I was sort of like, other than the kind of the scene on top of the train and things like that, I I, I, I couldn't have told it was James Mangold directing it. I didn't sort of feel there was an identity towards the direction, and I feel like that about a lot of films that I see now. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I don't sort of see the director, as it were. I don't look at them and and, and think, oh, yeah, yeah, this is blah blah, or this is such and such. And it's it, you know these announcements of these new Star Wars films are sort of saying this person directs, and other than kind of um, what's his name, Ryan Johnson, who I think yeah, he's quite a kind of a striking director. But a lot of these people they're naming, you know, you look at their filmographies and sort of think, I don't really kind of see what they've seen in this person to sort of yeah, they're not bringing you know what their kind of visual styles with Fritz Lang films. I'm always aware that, you know, it's going back to the alternative thing, you're always aware you're watching a Fritz Lang film, even Ministry of Fear. You, 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 you're there, and this has some brilliant moments in it, I find, especially with the ghosts, kind of, well, the, mm. not the ghosts, but the kind of the the apparition or whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, kind of moving around. It's, oh, I wouldn't say scary, but it's definitely very disconcerting when you're watching it, I find, and it's quite it's freaky 
which I think is the, probably the best word to use. Yeah, I mean, you've you actually touched on a lot. <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, like I, uh, I was just when you were talking about disconcerting uh, compositions, I was also thinking about a very. Uh, I think a lot about the uh, that room that uh, yeah. that Mabuse okay. is supposedly occupying behind a curtain, and uh, it's one of the brilliant moments in the film. I think the two most two brilliant moments in the film involve gunfire. One is the the one where Hoffmeister is is in total blackness, and the only light we see is when he uh, is from the muzzle flash from his gun when he fires it. And then the other one is uh, when uh, Kent and Lily are trapped in the room, and so the camera's facing Kent and Lily, and Kent fires into the curtain, and then what we think is a is a one hundred eighty degree cut uh, to their point of view. <laughs> What we've actually cut to is the point of view of this absent figure, who we who turns out is just a, you know, a, a cardboard cutout of a man. Uh, and I just thought that that's another example of him sort of leading us up the garden path of being able to rely on a certain geometry, and then saying no, mm. no, not necessarily. Yeah, and that scene really that that really got me that scene because the thing I have this a lot where. I watch films like horror films, for example, and they sort of build themselves up and then the payoff never seems to be sort of really worth the journey. And with this, I was like, please don't show me the man behind the curtain. <laughs> like, literally, don't, li- you know, and I remember seeing it thinking, literally, I don't want to see what's behind this. And then it's sort of like, it almost sort of says, well, haha, there isn't. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's just, you, you've been fooled as well. And I love that about it because, you know, what, what, what was stopping anyone from going up there and pulling back the curtain? You know, what, you know, it's a question that doesn't get asked, but you just assume, don't you, that there is going to be someone there. And it's just that kind of black cut, you know, cut out there. Yeah. Part of me was like thinking, is it, a, is, it a, is it a ghost? Is it this supernatural being? And it's like, no, don't be an idiot. It's, you know, it's smoke and mirrors. You know, it, it, But that's the brilliance of this film, I think. It does sort of it plays with your mind a little bit, I think, at times. Because the first time I watched it, I was thinking about any minute now we're going to see Dr. Mabuse. Mm. You know, he's gonna, he's going to be this. You know, he's, he'll be. You know, we, back from you know, he'll the, he'll be, be there. back from the dead or something. Yeah, yeah, it will make sense. You know, it'll be like it'll be. You know, there'll be a flashback and it'll show him. You know, faking his own death or something like that. <laughs> and it doesn't. And that's the sort of thing. It, it sort of says, well, you know, this film is actually taking place in the real world, and it's just sort of you know, a setup, as it were. And but because you sort of because of how I, I think you, you know, how you're thinking about the film, you wait. You're sort of waiting to kind of piece it together and when it sort of it isn't anything as exotic as kind of a ghost or a you know, resurrected body it, it, I, I still think you sort of feel like you've been fooled in a way but in a good way yeah in a way that kept you engaged in the film i think it uh it sort of evades uh i mean it's sort of smoke and mirrors that kills you know uh because these he uh, mabuse had no problem doing away with uh with people who were thinking about mutiny um but uh, I think, like, uh, the mystery of the film sort of backs away from your attempts to solve it, uh, only to to sort of build up a, a more, a less definable uh, sense of mystery as well. So that when you're finished, uh, it's it's resolved to, to a degree, but, you know, you're still left with this powerful uh, uh, sense of being troubled by what came before. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, it doesn't offer a nicely sort of wrapped up ending. I, I think the way it sort of goes is, is that it, it's easily this situation could come, could happen again. You know, somehow these kind of letters or, you know, the sort of the Mabuse sort of 
spirit or you know, you know the kind of the you know the way sort of people you know kind of go on about kind of Mao Zedong and people like that you know hmm. it's that that sort of revolutionary kind of ideal it's always going to be there and I think that's what this film it doesn't say yeah everything's fine from here on hmm. this this will never trouble us again thank god let's go and have a drink you know it just sort of says oh well you know um, this is weird and well we're just going to kind of walk off but we don't really quite know what, you know, what, what happens next and i love it for that actually so mm. i mean i don't know perhaps it just says something about me but i don't like my films to be kind of necessarily wrapped up nice and neatly and you know where, where, where sometimes i think perhaps films do try and sort of you know tack on make things a little bit too happy like one of my favorite endings to a film is the game i absolutely adore that film on the basis you know, that it kind of it makes you feel like a bit of an idiot at the end of that film <laughs> and there's that brilliant scene where i think at the end he's going to go and have a drink he might not go and have a drink with her at the bar or something like that and it's yeah i just love it that kind of playfulness and this it, this film does the same thing for me i think but it is quite interesting uh thing you said about um about the supernatural elements because it's never quite clear if it's Mabuse or Baum or if it's someone else entirely who's behind this, but it seems like that isn't what he is interested in, as you were saying, but it, it it's sort of playing with this idea that the Testament, uh, the words uh, in the film, that is what has power over, over the entire underground, the crime. Yeah. Because it seems like Baum, when he reads that Testament, that's when he's obsessed and that's when he becomes like psychotic or whether he's controlled by the spirit or whatever you can, whatever you want to say. But it seems like the ideology, that's the danger in this film. Yeah, the ghost image is an expedient i think uh whereas the the true uh the the crux of it is as you said it's in the text it's in the the writings of mabuse when he's in his when he's in the the insane asylum hmm. um it, it, you know but on the other hand the the ghost uh provides us with some of the the film's more striking images uh i think it's uh balm is sitting across from this phantom and we, yeah, we yeah. cut to the, I mean, the phantom and he's uh you know that's a that's a that's a striking image but then we cut back to baum who's uh who's if anything uh he gives us more of a jolt because he's you know <laughs> he's going out of his mind <laughs> but, yeah, but uh, i mean the other one about when it cuts to that the the image of Mabuse, that it's not, not even the ghost is sort of or the the, the image it's not even kind of like a comfortable image. There's something seriously weird going on with his face. He's got like prosthetics on and things like that. I think. And I think we can see his brains. It, yeah, and it's it's a it's a shockingly horrible image. And I, I, even I was thinking that even when it, even when this film's being messed up, it's even more messed up on another level. He's got huge kind of goggle eyes, a pointy you know, Yeah, and you're right. You you can almost see his brain and his like wispy hair and. It's horrible, and I like the idea. It's kind of a visual manifestation of someone's insanity, and I know I mean, it's like one of those things. That, you know, some people might watch this. Oh no, it's definitely a ghost. You know, it's a supernatural film. I mean, I don't take that away from it. I do know someone who does sort of hold that belief, and I'm sort of like, come on, you know, it's it's more about like you say the, the power of ideals and how and visually representing that. And in that respect, I really love it for that. Mm -hmm. There's very few great supernatural films. I mean, I think. Uh... Well, Vertigo is one where you can truly say that, uh, that there's a ghost there. Um, but I do think, uh, the ghost, I think the ghost image is, uh, it's sort of, uh, an alibi for, 
for the true uh, where the actual criminal mind is in in Testament, which is you know given away with the title. It's just you know Mabuza's will. Hmm. It, the double meaning there. I mean, yeah, the will, like his his power, and also his uh, his estate. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we can kind of like can we move on it in a little bit because one of my I find sort of we I know you you were kind of talk about kind of the pacing of it and things like that and it does kind of drag a little bit. I personally found the last sort of like twenty minutes kind of tr- were, were a little bit too like there's too much going on in a way. I thought the bit with kind of Tom and Lil in the that room, I could sort of sense that I've never been quite kind of happy or comfortable with that because it doesn't make any sense to me why he's going to sort of keep them in there for three hours. <laughs> Do you know, well, why not just bump them off straight away? I don't get I don't know sort of baddies don't kill people when they should do. A much shorter film. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, and, and the weird thing is when I first watched it and I saw that room, I was like, why was there clearly a urinal on the wall? And I remember thinking <laughs> there best be a reason why that urinal was there and that pipe's there. And oh, wow. that was what, and, and then suddenly, you know, obviously it, it does get explained. But I mean, did, do any of you two kind of like struggle with that a little bit, a little bit? Obviously, perhaps I'm like, am I being nitpicky again? I don't think it's, I don't think it's a problem to nitpick. Uh, you know, this we're, you're, we're welcome to nitpick anything, and I, I don't, uh, I don't side with you that it takes away from the film. And in fact, I, I kind of, I do like that whole sequence because, um, apart from the base, base entertainment value of, uh, of the <laughs> suspense, and uh, you know, you have to sort of look the other way at the, at the flimsiness of. Uh, how it's justified with the, as you said, the three hour wait and so forth. I mean, uh, I, I think Lang many times likes to put his, uh, his, his, his hero couples through, uh, these terrible trials. And then he gives them this single way out and uh, that he reveals at the last moment. Um, this is, this occurs again. Uh, this occurs several times. Uh, the one I'm thinking of right now is, uh, secret beyond the door, which kind of, it's almost a duplicate because I think at the have you have you both seen it? I've not seen it. No. Oh, uh, well, I don't want to get too into it then. Um, no, 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 get into it. Well, it's well, it's going to reveal the ending. Well, okay. well look okay. at the end of the film, the good people live. So <laughs> right. let's just say, well, what happens is uh, you know uh, the house is cut is caught fire, and the it's supposed to be a plot to do away with Joan Bennett and. Uh, uh, I think uh, somehow, some through some plot expedient, uh, the a window manages to be shattered, and that's how she gets out. So, you know, uh, oh, and there's another one in Manhunt. Uh, this, this is kind of a, a thematic thing that I've been noticing. It, it uh, Walter Pigeon is is basically been uh, trapped in this. Uh, I guess uh, it's like some fallen rubble, and he's been he's being menaced by George Sanders, and at the last moment. Uh, Walter Pigeon managed to manages to fashion this sort of crude arrow and use the only gap in the in this little cave <laughs> to to just uh, to <laughs> to kill George Sanders by through it with an arrow through the neck and it's completely unbelievable but it's you know, at the same time it's wonderful uh, yes. and there's another example in a in a movie who uh, that we'll, we're not speaking about right now <laughs> <laughs> no we can. You, you, no, we can talk about Ministry of Fear, honestly. I, I, I did it for a Criterion episode, and I was just like, I just cannot get into this film at all. It was just, 
Yeah, well, it was, I don't know. It's I, one of those, and perhaps I need. Well, look, if you let's say you go see it again at some point in the future, and and maybe you don't come around to it entirely, but if you look for uh, this wonderful uh, graphic uh, uh, display of visual artistry, where uh, the bad guy is uh, uh, is seen through the door, and, and uh, uh, what happens is uh, he says, "Oh, you won't shoot me, will you?" And uh, sure enough, they shoot him through the door, and the single white dot appears on the screen and then it disappears for a moment as his corpse falls to the floor. Uh, and that's, uh, I think it's, uh, and it's like sort of an elemental, uh, version of, of the scenario that I've been describing where you have these trapped, this trapped couple with, uh, or, or individual with uh, one possible way out, which I can, you could connect back to uh, Siegfried uh, in 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 Denibelungen, where hmm. which is well, the, it's the polar reverse because uh, you've got this victorious hero, uh, save for one tiny dot, right? Uh, which is hmm. the have you seen Denibelungen? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is his, you know, his uh, his version of the Achilles heel because that's uh, an arrow through there, a spear through there is what does away with him this film's got to have some hope and i think they're the hope of this film and i think mm-hmm. they're kind of they're kind of the yeah it's a human element yeah those two are going to live happily ever thereafter and you know that in a way it's quite nice that the fact it's a complete accident how they end up helping it and that, yeah it's his chance at redemption is it and you know things are going to be okay that's the sort of what i kind of took out of their character perhaps because i'm miserable i could <laughs> quite happily live without it but you know i don't know but it, I, I did sort of find the scenes with them you know, a little bit kind of, especially when he's trying to convince her that he's a horrible person. She's just like, I just, she just looks at him in even more of a sappy way. I've been to prison for four years for murdering, was it my girlfriend and her, and her lover or something. And she's just like, I love you. It's like, <laughs> come on, come on, come on. You know what I mean? I know, I know, you know, I know he seems like a nice guy and he gave you your money back, but come on, you know what I mean? It's, uh, you know, he's, he's not that great. You know what I mean? <laughs> One question I did have was, uh, what version did you, or what uh, region uh, DVD did you watch? Was it the Master of Cinema one, or the Kino one, or Criterion? Or I watched the Criterion one. I assume there's uh, an upgrade uh, to the Blu-ray down the line. Hmm. But I, but their their hmm. their DVDs are quite strong. Any in any case, uh, how's the picture on that one? Uh, it's a, it's excellent. I think uh, there's. Yeah, there's some damage here and there. I, I believe the the Blu-ray was reviewed better, uh, mm-hmm. but as a rule, uh, especially after the first few years uh, had gone by, um, Criterion standard definition DVDs are uh, are not shameful in any way. You could stick them up to uh, you know any Paramount or or, or Fox Blu-ray uh, almost mm-hmm. any day of the week. We are definitely familiar with Criterion, aren't we, Tom? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. My, my my current financial predicament is in uh, some way caused by a uh, Criterion addiction. No, I mean, I've got like I mean, I've got the Criterion, the Master Cinema DVD, the Blu-ray, and definitely, you know, I've, yeah, I can say so, Jamie, the the the, uh, the Criterion is brilliant. But I would say the Blu-rays of of these films, the the first and the second one, the thing that really struck me about these Master Cinema ones is how good the sound was. Mm. Um, really strong. Um, kind of clarity to it. I would say, just a quick digression, I suppose, but 
one of the things I find about watching silent films, especially when they're incredibly long, like um, Dishbill, is the fact that the music sometimes that's been re-recorded really begins to do my head in on a lot of them. I find it really, really distracting. And um, when I was watching five hours of it again the other day, I I had to put on some other music in the end to sort of, I think I put on like some kind of chilled out playlist I found on Spotify. Because I was getting... I was getting so wound up with it. It's plinkety plonk. And I know what they're trying to do. I really do see, and I, they're trying to recreate, you know, the, the, the you know, what it must have been like at the time and whatnot. But yeah, it really begins to grate on me after a while. No, you, you I think you're well within your right, your rights. Uh, I don't want to set the world uh, to, to putting on uh, just any old music with their silent films. But on the other hand, I mean, it, uh, a lot of times the scores that are attached to these films, uh, well, I suppose until recent years when there started to be a little bit more of a, uh, a little bit, a little bit more effort and thought into it. Uh, a lot of times you'd get some old VHS or laser disc of a silent film and it would really be a hit or miss as to whether you could tolerate the score or not. Um, uh, and I found, uh, there are certain films that, uh, where I was able to identify the the composer and say, okay, well, for this film I'll be all right because you know he does a good job. But then I saw I would see another name and I would say, uh oh. <laughs> and and, yeah, I mean, and who's to say be... what music is supposed to go with Melius or if any, you know, uh, or, or or like the early Griffith shorts and so forth. I mean, those. Uh, I, I agree with a, a friend who said that uh, unless you have the director uh, putting his name on an affidavit saying which score should go with the film um you it's it's really uh you're 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 sort of gambling with your time and your sanity (laughs) yeah i mean and there are a few i mean there's a few have have you you seen the great white silence um i've not i've not herbert pointing film no well i mean a guy called um simon fish turner went back and he's a composer and he did new scores for them and absolutely the scores they're in their own right, in their own right. Sorry, they're they're, they're brilliant albums as well, mm. and the um, the Epic of Everest as well is another one that you know, he went back and rescored. And I think perhaps I was a little bit kind of um, spoiled by those because you can listen to them, you know, completely devoid of the film, and you're still completely taken with them. I, and I did actually the other week. I watched the Kino version of Intolerance, and the music on that it was like someone pressed a demo button on a keyboard from the 1980s. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my god! I was like, this is going off. I'm gonna have to put something else on. And in the end, I think I listened to kind of like down tempo kind of dance music to kind of get me through it. And yeah, it was a little thing I was slightly aware of. But as I said, the quality of the audio on the Blu-rays I think is something to be you know really kind of enjoyed because it's so clear and so powerful. And that's the thing. The German accent, and I don't want to sound sort of um, Euro uh, skeptic here or Europhobic. It's, it's quite a harsh accent, I find. It's quite a harsh. No, it's, it is. Joke. And it's quite. And this no, film, no I think, fear of being. Uh, I'm sure the yeah, Germans. I mean, I'm yeah. sure the Germans would agree with you. <laughs> I'm sure they hate our accent anyway, and, and obviously because we've got the World Cup going on at the moment. <laughs> and, yeah, they're the kind of the, uh, yeah, the anti-German sentiment was rife <laughs> on Facebook from certain oh, Dutch friends on Facebook. I would know, I noticed last night, and uh, no, uh, yeah. It, I, I was finding that kind of, you know, um, especially in M as well, you know, they see it's when people do talk in that film, you know, it's, it's piercing almost. And yeah, I, I was acutely aware of it. I watched this testament when, when it's so clear and quite loud as well. Yeah, it was a 
quite a bit of shouting in this film. I was like, oh my god, that really is a horrible voice accent. It was just well, you, should, you should sit down with some of uh, Fassbender's more uh, shouty films. Uh, oh, gotcha. Um, <laughs> it takes some god. some getting used to. Uh, I, I wanted to just make a quick note on the silent film scores once more. Uh, I don't, yeah. at the top of my head, I don't recall any Lang silence as having a uh, scores attached to them that I thought were great. Uh, there might be some, but I just don't remember. But uh, I wanted to connect this to um, uh, a Louis Foyad serial called Judex from uh, 1916. Mm -hmm. And this is appropriate because, uh, well, for one thing, the score on uh, the DVD, which is from Flickr Alley, which, uh, you know, we should say their name again, Flickr Alley, because they're a great label to, to support. Uh, but Judex is very much a, uh, it, it, it's very much a, a grandfather to the Mabuse films. Uh, and one of the, and that, one of the points you, you mentioned earlier, Joaquin, was to do with, uh, how these, how prescient the films are. Well, hmm. there is actually, uh, there's an early version of surveillance video in this film from 1916. Oh, and yeah. uh, and and that's sort of the very the very quality of being prescient about technology is something that uh, Lang inherited, uh, I think. Hmm. And it's a wonderful film. No, check. <laughs> no, it, yeah. How does that relate to the uh, Criterion Judex? Is that the same thing, or is that well, a later version? I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, in in the French cinema. Uh, especially during the time that uh, Franju was uh, was practicing, uh, Louis Foyad is was thought of as uh, as is the you know as as one of the godfathers of cinema. He's, he was uh, revered, uh, and so there are remakes of his films like uh, uh, Phantomas uh, and hmm. a few others. And Judex, well, Judex is a serial that you. Uh, you know, it's seven hours or so long, but you don't just sit down and watch seven hours. You watch it by episodes, like much uh, acclaimed modern television. But uh, um, uh, his Judex is, uh, it's compressed, and it has, uh, it's very good. I think it's a really good movie. Um, but it had, and I think it's made good not by, uh, you know, well, it is entertaining, but also it has certain, it has a Franju certain quality to it uh, mm. that you could. Uh, it has sort of some of the same film sense that you get with Eyes Without a Face uh, uh, and the others. So okay. it's it's. I think it's roughly, actually. Is oh, it, I'm sorry. No, no, sorry. I think it's actually coming out on Blu-ray soon, isn't it? I think Judex, or has it just come out on Blu-ray? On, in, it has come out here. It is on Criterion. Yeah, yeah. Here it's out on Criterion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but maybe it's is it uh, could be uh, down the pipeline for. Uh, well, no, I was saying I've actually picked up the I've, I've ordered the Blu-ray of it, so I just quite quite waiting for it to come through. So yeah, it's got I'm a. Looking forward to going back. I won't give anything away, but it's got quite a it's got quite an opening scene itself. Mm. So <laughs> leave some mystery at the end there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, moving on to the special features of the Mass of Cinema One, uh, have you listened to the commentary, Tom? I haven't. No, and there was a reason why, and. It's the same reason why I haven't listened to the Point Blank commentary of John Borman is that I don't think I want to know. I, I, I'm quite happy with how I feel about the film. 
and how I kind of take out from it. And I didn't want to sort of hear anything which I thought would be a bit, um, I don't know, would, would perhaps kind of you know, destroy some of the ideas that I have about it or how I feel about it. It's like in John, in Point Blank, I don't want to know one thing. And if you've seen the film, you'll probably know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. And I, and I was worried that the commentary would kind of give too much away. And for that reason, I didn't really want to kind of, I'm, I'm happy with how I feel about the film and how I interpret it. So I didn't really want to listen to it in case. And I don't know, it sounds ignorance is bliss type policy, but yeah, I might do it one stage, but I haven't actually listened to the commentary on it though. Well, it is highly recommended. He is such an incredible source of information and he keeps it at such a um, common people level. As you say, it's not like this dry academic um, commentary, but he keeps it engaging and fun and he comes with a lot of great insights and especially surrounding the cutting and the um, the context of the film as well. So it's highly recommended. I think Khaled has the commentary for a few other massive cinema discs like Nosferatu and City Girl as well. Mm. So very good. Uh, did you read the book? I have to. Or? Could I? Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Well, uh, that, that, uh, that commentary, I believe, is uh, uh, also appears on the Criterion. I think that's okay. it's sourced from that. Uh, so I, I don't I don't I want to concur that it's a very good one. Hmm. Uh, I have not had the time to read the uh, booklet, but uh, can you speak on that, Tom? Yeah, it's really good. It's packed full of stuff, uh, full of interesting articles and things like that. And uh, it's always a one about, isn't it, with, um, with booklets sometimes? Because they're not kind of you know something you can play on the disc. They kind of get short shrift sometimes. But definitely recommend it. Really, really interesting. Um, and uh, there's you know plenty of articles in it and yeah loads to tuck into so definitely definitely check it out yeah um let me just say as well yeah so the quality of the image on this blu-ray as well is brilliant as well i think it's a real i think it's a brilliant restoration yeah uh, especially the the uh, strips that haven't been uh newly discovered because you can sense that when they cut to those scenes that uh are uh, restored um, the ones that were lost, there's a, a, def- a definite uh, image um, quality difference, but uh, overall the image is quite strong. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I was going to take some stills off it actually and you know, use some kind of screen grabs and things like that on my computer because yeah, I was really taken just how you know, the, the contrast in the, you know, the image is absolutely spot on. Mm. So, another fantastic job, really. Yeah. So, um, wrapping up on Mabuse, it's a completely fascinating film that is, it's very complex and unusual and full of surprises and the atmosphere is so singular, even though there's no central character, it feels like series of episodes that kind of overlap each other, especially after Mabuse's death. It's like this large puzzle that he's, Lang is attempting to put together, but we're not quite sure where it's going, but we couldn't really care because the the execution of it is so brilliant and it just has me for the paranoia and the suspicion that exudes from the film. So, I mean, I would say to anyone, watch all of them, not just this one. Um, perhaps we'll go back and do do the first one at some stage. But yeah, just see them all as a trilogy. Cause if you you have three films that are filmed in completely different stages, not only kind of socio-politically, but different ages of cinema as well. And to see kind of, you know, for saying from a, I suppose, a silent film director to a sound director to a, you know, a Hollywood director, it's an interesting kind of journey. And yeah, I think we kind of, it's, 
we roll our eyes too often perhaps at the word kind of sequel and all that kind of thing and i mean i find like there are a lot of kind of franchises that i really enjoy and this is certainly one which i think is well worth checking out and uh, yeah it was, it was nice going back to those kind of university days for me when i was watching these again so definitely watch them all i would i would say uh that if you uh if you find yourself becoming a lang enthusiast that uh, as you as you work your way through his work, you'll find that there's a there's a lot of connective tissue between works that don't seem like they have any similarities on the surface. Uh, you know, especially a lot you know between uh, silent films and the films he made in the fifties. Um, and I would also make another plug for uh, if you can, if if it's if it's possible to to track down. Uh, the the serial adventure crime films of uh, of Louis Foyad because uh, Lang uh, certainly owes a lot to him in terms of not just the way he can the way he uh, tells these thrilling tales but uh, the way he finds uh, his unique imprint on it, it, he finds ways to put his unique imprint on them. Uh, we should mention that the uh, the Phantomas series is on the US version of Netflix, so instant. Oh, really? So, Jamie, where can we find you on the internet? I am on, uh, I think I'm most commonly uh, mouthing off on Twitter uh, under the handle <laughs> uh, J underscore Chrisley. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-L-E-Y. Um, and I do, uh, I do write for Slant now and then. Uh, you know, I review DVDs sometimes, and uh, I just, well, I, I reviewed 22 Jump Street, and I've got another one coming up. It's the uh, J.M. McDonough film, uh, Calvary, which is uh, which is coming here in a little bit. Oh, yeah. Just, well, we had it a few months ago, and unfortunately, I never, it, was only, it was only in the cinema for like a week. So uh, it was a few months ago. I'm waiting for that one to come out. I heard really good things about it, though. So. I was a big admirer of uh, of The Guard, uh, and I like, yeah. I like uh, his brother's films as well. Uh, so I'm, you know. Hearing good things. Looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Tom, where, we can, where can we find you? Um, you can find me um, Twitter at 24framescast. You can find me on my other uh, podcast, 24framescast.blogspot.com. Um, I do have a couple of new episodes coming out. One on the um, Harry Palmer films trilogy, ah. actually. So that has been gestating for a long, long time. But I'm almost on the way. I'm just having to watch the third one again, which if you've seen the first <sighs> film in that series, dear God. Yes. Um, it's, uh, it is a painful, pitiful experience, but I was determined not to give it short shrift. And I've got another one as well coming out with some uh, reviews of some uh, films I've seen recently. And also, um, there is going to be, we did say in the last one, I'll be doing a couple of solo episodes on this. Those ones were done, although I, and I did experience something of a technical catastrophe, um, which I didn't actually tell you about, you know, Kim, because oh. I was so angry about it. So I'm telling you now, um, I made a huge cock up on, on them, and I've had to go back and do loads of work on them. So there will be a solo one at some stage which i'll just drop into the feed so great uh you can find us at moc underscore cast on twitter you can email us uh on masters of cinemacast at gmail.com and you can also find us uh on moccast.blogspot.com so i think the next episode we will drop is about the third quarter announcements i think i just read that the busby berkeley musical uh they're all here or something is coming so the gang's uh, all here the gang's all here, yeah. yes. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, I've, I've never heard of it, never seen it, so uh, it will be uh, interesting. I have seen it and have heard of it, so, um, and yeah, I'm quietly looking forward to that one, actually, so. 
Great. I'm pretty happy with that. So, so until next time, uh, thank you for listening and goodbye. Thank you.